0: Let's open our Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 8, the gospel of Luke chapter 8. We're going to read verses 22 through 39 this morning. All right, now that you're all there. Now it happened on a certain day that he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us cross over to the other side of the lake. And they launched out. But as they sailed, he fell asleep, and a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in jeopardy. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased, and there was a calm. But he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid and marveled, saying to one another, Who can this be? For he commands even the winds and water, and they obey him. Then they sailed to the country of the Gadarenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when he stepped out on the land, there met him a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time. He wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For it had often seized him, and he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles. And he broke the bonds and was driven by the demon into the wilderness. Jesus asked him, saying, what is your name? And he said, "Legion," because many demons had entered him. And they begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. Now a herd of many swine was feeding there on the mountain, so they begged him that they, he would be—excuse uh, me—that he would permit them to enter them. And he permitted them. Then the demons went out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the lake and drowned. And those who fed them saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then they went out to see what had happened and came to see Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had departed sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. They also who had seen it told them by what means he who had been demon-possessed was healed. Then the whole multitude of the surrounding region of the Gadarenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with a great fear." And he got into the boat and returned. Now the man from whom the demons had departed begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. And he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Let's pray together. Father, we have set apart this time and want to dedicate this time to listening to your voice through your word. I pray, Lord, that the distractions that surround us, and not just the physical ones, Lord, but our own emotional and spiritual distractions in our own heart would be kept to a minimum so that we could attend to the voice of your word, the still, small voice of your spirit, ministering within our spirit, Lord, showing us Jesus, revealing to us his love and grace and mercy, his help in time of need. Pray for those who are here, Lord, who are in the storms of life, that today they would know a calm and a peace that can only come from being in them with you. We pray that you would give us understanding of these satanic oppressions, Lord, that we're going to read about, that we would have no fear of them, but realize the faith that overcomes fear. Do all of these things, Lord, we pray, in abundance, with grace, by your mercy. And we pray in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. The four episodes in the remaining verses of chapter 8 would have made a great first century reality television series. It would have been called Faith Factor. The cameras would follow 12 men and their mentor as their faith was challenged in dramatic confrontations with the four circumstances of life that instill the most fear. On the boat, the disciples were confronted with the fear of storms. The storm on the sea metaphorically represented any and all of the storms of life. On the shore, the disciples were confronted with the fear of Satan. The demoniac of Gadara represented the worst case of satanic possession and oppression they could imagine and stood for all cases of satanic oppression and possession. As we press on in chapter 8, Lord willing, we'll encounter two additional circumstances of life that instill the most fear suffering, and separation of the soul from the body at death. Two of the episodes will involve physical danger. Two will involve spiritual danger. And these four pretty well sum up all the circumstances you might fear in this life and in the next. The disciples were not playing for a million-dollar prize. No one got voted off or fired, although one of them would quit and commit suicide before it was over. They were being prepared day by day to walk by faith and to overcome fear. The episodes in your life can really get pretty dramatic. They will fall into one of these same four categories, storms, Satan, sufferings, or the separation of death. In them and through them, you are being prepared day by day to walk by faith and to overcome your fears. We'll organize our thoughts around two points. Number one, faith in Jesus foils your fear of storms. And number two, faith in Jesus foils your fear of Satan. First of all, in verses 22 through 25, faith in Jesus foils your fear of storms. A friend of mine was taking sailing lessons. One time while I was visiting him down in San Clemente, a storm blew in. I was bummed because we couldn't go to the beach, but he was happy, grabbed his gear and headed for the marina at Dana Point. He and all the others in his class were waiting for a storm so that they could have a lesson from their instructor in rough weather sailing, which I guess is important if you're going to go sailing. Jesus gave his disciples the ultimate rough weather sailing lesson as they crossed the Sea of Galilee. Let's pick up the story again in verse 22. Now it happened on a certain day that he got into a boat with his disciples. And he said to them, Let us cross over to the other side of the lake. And they launched out. But as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in jeopardy. It's approximately five miles across the Sea of Galilee to where they were going. Because of its location, It was and is subject to treacherous wind and waves that can come up in pretty much instantaneously. Jesus was exhausted, so exhausted that the storm itself did not wake him. Uh, and, And you know, these are small boats. This isn't a cruise line that he's taking across the Sea of Galilee. It's a little fishing boat, and and it's tossing and turning and filling with water. And yet the Lord continued to sleep. He was physically exhausted from ministering to others, and that's worthy of our meditation. There's just something really precious about that, to see the Lord, uh, who in a minute the demons are going to recognize as the son of the most high God, the Lord of glory, who is so exhausted physically from pouring himself out, ministering to all those who came to him. It's a great example for us as we await his return. There was also a spiritual purpose to his sleeping. Even Jesus asleep teaches us lessons, God would use it to test the disciples. And so we read in verse 24, and they came to him and awoke him saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased, and there was a calm. How many of you like to be woke up in the middle of the night? Eh. And, and a lot of times I do get woken up in the middle of the night. People call, there's emergencies or tragedies or things like that, and, and people are always apologetic when they call. Sorry that I called you. Were you asleep? <laughs> I say, no, I had to answer the phone. The phone was ringing. I had to wake up. Anyway, and uh, of course, I'm not really awake when I answer the phone in the middle of the night. You should know that. I should tell you that. If you don't hear my wife talking in the background, then I'm not really awake because she'll be saying things like, "Gene, wake up, wake up. I could... Hi, oh, yeah, great, fine. You know? If she doesn't wake up too, then I go right back to sleep. Oh, a nuclear bomb just fell. Oh, okay, great you know uh, it just takes me a while I'm a deep sleeper but uh, you know a lot of people they do get kind of crotchety when you wake them up in the middle of the night you can tell I mean you can tell by talking to them listen I have a philosophy for you if you don't want to be woke up in the middle of the night take your phone off the hook otherwise I'm calling you if I need to you know there's none of this hey why are you bothering me just take your phone off the hook if it's that big of a deal sometimes you have to be woke up but it. you know shall we call shall we wait you know there's there's always that you know hesitation. I wonder how long they hesitated before they finally decided to wake up the Lord. You know, they'd been with the Lord for a while, and they probably had some sense that there was something spiritual going on. And they're thinking, should we wake him? Should we let him sleep? We're going to drown, you know, and I'm sure they divided. Four of them were experienced fishermen, and they would have been the last ones to throw in the towel, as it were, and say, all right, we can't handle this storm. You know, when you're out with somebody who's experienced you, you think everything's going to be all right. It reminds me of the bonka boat trip we took in the Philippines. Oh, yeah, sure, it's fine. We can get everybody on two boats. Yeah, right, if you want to drown and die on the way back. It was terrible. I don't have time to tell you the whole story, but we're supposed to take four boats. These bonka boats are these hollowed-out logs with lawnmower engines in them. <laughs> You're on the Pacific Ocean about a mile offshore, you know, going to Apu Island, you know. <laughs> Your Filipino guide has a pith helmet on, and and, uh, the drive shaft is just a pipe, and I don't know what the propeller is, and man, on the way back, we we almost lost one of the boats. It capsized, practically. A couple of the guys had to jump out and grab the pontoons, and it was bad. And so, the disciples were worried. (laughs) Fearing for their lives, they woke Jesus. He rebuked the storm, and there was an immediate calm. The sea was like glass, no wind at all, no residual waves. I I, I always like to point that out. It wasn't that things just calmed down. It was like it never happened in the first place. Glassy water. It would have seemed a little bit surreal to them. One of those episodes where you think, hey, did that just happen? I mean, have you ever been, and some of you have, uh, some of you are in emergency services or have been around kinds of things out of the ordinary, and it's like, man, did that just happen? What just happened? It's stunning because you're not ready for it. And these guys, one minute, the boat is full of water. They're going to die. They're screaming to wake up the Lord. And the next minute, everything is completely calm. Now, Jesus took the opportunity to teach his disciples about rough weather sailing. He said to them, verse 25, where's your faith? And they were afraid and marveled, saying to one another, who can this be? For he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. It seems a little harsh at first when Jesus looks at you and says, where is your faith? But you have to look back a few verses and remember what Jesus said when they started this sailing trip. He said, let us cross over to the other side of the lake. He didn't say to them, let us cross under to the other side of the lake. And that's important. I mean, you might think that's, a, you know, uh, mincing words, but, you know, you need to listen to the word of Jesus, If Jesus says, let's cross over to the other side, then that's significant. And at least one of those guys should have said, hey, he said we were going to cross over, not under. And so let's just let him sleep. Let's ride it out. But they didn't. There was a certainty that they would arrive at their destination, storm or no storm along the way. Knowing they were going over and not under, coupled with the example of Jesus asleep, should have overcome their fear. We speak metaphorically about the storms of life. Episode one of Faith Factor is a picture of how you should act in life's storms. And it may seem odd, but here's what I have to say. You may as well sleep and be at peace since God is always in control. You too will arrive at your spiritual destination You'll be conformed more and more into the image of Jesus. You will become more and more like the Lord through the storms of life. The Bible says you are predestined to become like the Son of God, that one day you will awake in His likeness. You're on your way to heaven if you're a Christian. Now, that doesn't mean that a boat that you're in might not sink or that some other tragedy might not befall you. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that there is no storm that Jesus isn't with you in, and that you will get to your final destination, and whatever you go through is His good will for your life. You may as well sleep. You'll be conformed to the image of Jesus. Now, Jesus said, where's your faith? When the disciples ask, who can this be? For He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey Him, they're giving you some insight on how you discover where is your faith. Your faith is in Jesus as he is revealed in God's word. You see, the Bible contains many verses that declare only God can command the wind and the waves. And so when Jesus gets up and he commands the wind and the waves, the disciples who, though ignorant men for the most part, knew the Old Testament scriptures, their mind would have filled with many passages, especially from the Psalms, about God commanding the wind and the waves. And so they were getting the sense here that Jesus must be God. And since he is God and the creator of all things, you can stand by faith on his promises, you can overcome your fear, and you can find peace in the center or in the eye of any storm that hits. And so when the storms of life hit you, think back first of all on Jesus' promises to you. In fact, you might want to search out some promise from God's Word so that it can bring peace in the midst of the storm. Jesus is with you in the storm, and though it may sound odd, if He seems asleep, then maybe you should sleep too. Have you been in really difficult situations and circumstances in your life where you've cried out to the Lord repeatedly over and over again, and you have a sense that He is not listening? You know that's not possible because you know that He ever lives to intercede for you. you. You know that He promised He would never leave you or forsake you. But there are those times when there seems to be a silence. The answer is not forthcoming, at least not the answer that you're desiring. Sometimes no answer. You just continue to ride the waves and the wind and your boat, whatever it is, whatever your situation, it seems to be in jeopardy of sinking. Well, then Jesus is asleep because he knows he has it all in hand, metaphorically speaking. And so you might as well sleep too and rest and say, well, Lord, if you want my boat to sink, uh, fine. I'm just going to cuddle up next to you and we'll just sleep this thing out. We'll ride it out together. And there can be that peace. Now, the disciples didn't have it. But they got to the other side and Jesus taught them this lesson. You and I go through many things in life so that we can learn these lessons. It's possible when you look back on your trial and you think, why didn't I just trust the Lord? I knew there was that part of me that said, go to sleep, just rest, don't worry about it. But our fear and our worry and our anxiety overcame us. But line upon line and precept upon precept, the Lord is teaching us things as he takes us through these episodes showing us his faithfulness. And so if Jesus seems asleep, he's not, but maybe you should rest. Now, secondly, faith in Jesus foils your fear of Satan. Christian author C.S. Lewis said this about Satan, and I quote, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. The Bible tells you that there is a personal devil, names him Satan. He's loose on the earth today. He, along with a host of fallen angels that we call demons, the Bible says take unbelievers captive to do his will. Now, as we'll see in a little while, that doesn't mean that they're possessed. But nevertheless, if you're not a believer, you're in the category of being a captive in the devil's territory. Now, the devil and his demons have a host of strategies by which they hold unbelievers captive. You don't have to be demon-possessed to be the devil's prisoner. Demon-possession is a dramatic expression of Satan's enslavement, and so Luke gives you kind of an ultimate extreme example of demon-possession. Verse 26, And they sailed to the country of the Gadarenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when he had stepped out on the land, there met him a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time. He wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had often seized him, and he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles, and he broke the bonds and was driven by the demon into the wilderness. These details are real, and I don't want to take anything away from their physical horror. But the truth is, you're not encountering too many unbelievers like this in Kings County. I haven't. Maybe you are, but we're really not. But that doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but it doesn't mean that the devil's not active either. The unbelievers you encounter in Kings County are no less enslaved. Like this demoniac, they are prisoners of the devil's perversions, of the devil's priorities, and of the devil's power. First of all, they are prisoners of the devil's perversions. The demoniac had, it says, an unclean spirit. Unclean here means lewd or morally filthy, perverted. It's a way to describe the perversions that occur all around you, promoted by otherwise normal people. I don't need to tell you that our culture is in a moral slide. Uh, you, you'd have to, you have to be smoking pot not to think that. I mean, really. You know, it, it's just crazy. The last 10 years, and it's accelerating each year, it's getting worse and worse and worse uh, in kind of an exponential way. Even among Christians, and I've said this many times, things that were considered more or less taboo even 10 years ago are accepted as liberties in the church. Now, that's because the culture around us is so bad that we look good in comparison. But we're not really to compare ourselves to the culture. Hey, I'm better than an unbeliever who's taken captive by Satan. We're to compare ourselves to Christ and and have that standard, and and, and we want to uphold that standard. And so, though we don't encounter demon-possessed people uh, who are screaming at us and breaking chains and things like that on a regular basis. Our culture is being influenced by the devil's perversions, uh, and they're, they're even becoming laws now and legal. and th- I mean, it's crazy, and this is the thing that we have more to do with. This will be a theme that I'm going to develop as we talk about this, but Christians especially so worried about demons all the time, casting out demons, finding demons, There's a movement within Christianity to to map your city so that you can find out what kind of demonic strongholds are in different places of the city. And then you can pray effectively and release the demonic uh, power in that area. All the while, our society is sliding to hell and we're focusing in on something that's probably not even happening. And and so we want to stay focused on on the devil's perversions that are all around us and not those unusual ones that occur from time to time in terms of a possession. They are also prisoners of the devil's priorities. Not too many unbelievers are living in the tombs. Uh, I've been to the cemetery several times, don't know if anybody's living there. Uh, And even when, like, the Renaissance Fair comes into town, they don't camp there. I mean, it's, it's just, we don't see that a whole lot. I remember one, one Easter, one of the ladies in our church was a little freaked out because we used to have sunrise services at the Kings County Fairgrounds, and she was headed down that way, and she followed a car into the graveyard there uh, because another church was having sunrise service in the cemetery, which they thought was a cool idea, but it's really not, and... Uh, <laughs> She said, oh, man, I was freaked out. But anyway, uh, so not not too many people living in the tombs, but you'd never know it by their priorities. They're living as if this life were all that mattered and ignoring eternity. If this life is your priority, your philosophy is let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And unbelievers might as well live in the graveyard since that is as far as their priorities will take them. And then there are prisoners of the devil's power. The demoniac had supernatural strength to break chains. He was kind of like the Incredible Hulk, only in a bad way. I used to love the Hulk when I was a kid. Bruce Banner, hulking out. You know, I used to wish I could hulk out. Never understood why all of his clothes broke, but his pants. You know, he must have. He's like the original baggy pants, I guess, you know, so. So this guy had supernatural strength, but the demons within him turned that strength to his own destruction. In another account, in one of the other Gospels, it says not only he did all these things, but he cut himself with stones and he mutilated himself. The devil lures many unbelievers with the promise of some kind of power in this life, but often those who achieve that power find their own lives being destroyed along the way. Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, but there was a delay in responding. I want you to notice that. It wasn't that Jesus lacked the authority or that he was going about the exorcism the wrong way. It was that this episode was going to teach a larger lesson than a simple exorcism. In verse 30, Jesus asked him, saying, What's your name? And he said, Legion, because many demons had entered him. Oh, there is so much... Just bad teaching on this verse in certain circles. Primarily that if you're going to exorcise a demon out of somebody, you have to find out its name. They say, well, after all, Jesus couldn't do it until he found out the guy's name. Hey, there's nothing that Jesus couldn't do. If Jesus didn't cast him out immediately, it was for our learning. And so that's, that's just bad to start with. But it's bad theology. You don't need to know a demon's name to cast it out. And you know what's funny about this? This demon never tells Jesus his name. He says, well, legion. That's not his name. It's a description of the fact that there were many demons inside this man. And so don't don't get hooked up with this fascination with the devil and his demons. You know, if you encounter someone who is demon-possessed, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The Lord can show you and tell you what to do You don't don't have to have a, a book of exorcism or anything like that. The simplest believer with faith in Jesus Christ can confront the devil if necessary. Don't go looking for him. Don't do that. And don't be fascinated with him. And so Jesus says, what's your name? So that he can reveal to his disciples and to us that there were many demons, that this was an extreme case of demon possession. One demon had been doing all the talking. He was the spokes demon, as they're called. But there were a legion of them encamped within the man. I don't know how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, but there can be a legion of demons in a man. A Roman... Next time somebody asks you that, that might be a good response. Do you ever have anybody actually ask you? I have in philosophy classes at junior college where, man, what's that about? Well, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? I don't know, but you might have a legion of demons in you. <laughs> just a thought. Just an icebreaker, you know, a spiritual icebreaker. <laughs> a Roman legion was 6,000 men. The word here probably just means a lot. And we sometimes, you know, it's stupid, but we say, we use the word millions like that. Oh, man, there were millions and there's 20 people. But anyway, it just means a lot. We know there were enough to affect an entire herd of swine so there were there were a lot. This was a freaky scary encounter with Satan, something the disciples had never experienced. It was Jesus versus all the destructive power of Satan and his demons. Now that they had the perspective, Jesus continued. Now that his disciples knew what was really occurring, That and in one of the other Gospels as well, we find that there were, there were two demoniacs, but one did all the talking. I mean, this, was, this is extreme demonism, like you see on National Geographic, you know. Uh, I mean, this is bad news stuff. And so he says, in verse, or they say in verse 31, they begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. The abyss is also called the abuso, I like that, there's some cool words, you know. Every, about every week there's a cool word. Our, we, our word this week is abuso. <laughs> also called the bottomless pit in the Bible. It's a place where especially evil demons are incarcerated, if you can imagine that. It's not bad enough that you're a demon. You're an especially evil demon. It's sort of like the Pelican Bay of Hades. Yeah. It's where all the worst ones are. In the revelation of Jesus Christ, demons from the bottomless pit are released onto the earth to torment unbelievers for a time. This is that famous uh, episode where demons are let out and they have this horrible shape and they attack men and they want to die and kill themselves, but men, you, you can't even kill yourself. And the horror of it and the pain of it is just immense. That's what these guys are into. Verse 32, now a herd of many swine was feeding there on the mountain, so they begged him that he would permit them to enter them, and he permitted them. Then the demons went out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the lake and drowned. Now, let me first say this. No one knows why the demons wanted to go into the pigs. The text doesn't say, and anything anyone says is pure speculation, in terms of them not wanting to be disembodied and possessing animals and things like that. It's just all speculation, and it gets us more out of balance and into weird areas that we don't want to get into. The encounter isn't giving you tips on how to perform exorcisms, and it isn't exploring the psychology of demons. Remember what Lewis said, don't feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in Satan and demons. Jesus must have known the effect they would have on the herd of swine. He allowed them, didn't, didn't command them, but he allowed them to enter the herd to reveal something more interesting than this case of demonic possession, and that is that demon possession is not the only way Satan enslaves unbelievers. We're going to see people who are in worse bondage than this man was as we read the sequel here in verse 34. When those who fed them saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what had happened, and came to Jesus, and found the man from whom the demons had departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. They also who had seen it told them by what means he who had been demon possessed was healed. Then the whole multitude of the surrounding region of the Gadarenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. And he got into the boat. And returned. By the way, something I'm just thinking about right now, there is a sense, we've talked about this many times before, there is a sense that if people will see the miraculous, they'll come to Jesus Christ. They'll give their hearts and lives to the Lord. And, and there's a sense in which, man, if, if we could cast demons out of people and they could see that, the fruit of it and the result of it, well, these people saw that and they said, we, we need you to leave. We don't want to have any of that. Now, it's generally agreed by Bible teachers that these men were Jews who were raising pigs over in Gentile territory despite the prohibitions against pork in the Jewish dietary laws. It doesn't really matter if they were Jews or Gentiles. It's just interesting. What matters is the loss of their herd was a substantial financial setback for them. The physical cost of having Jesus around was more important to them than the spiritual cures He offered They would rather the man have remained possessed than lose their possessions. Their own desire for possessions held them captive more than the demons had held the demoniac. And see, I think that is the real gist of this story. Not that Jesus has power over extreme demonization and can set people free in a moment. Not to teach demon psychology or anything like that, but to show that the vast majority of people in the region were held captive by the devil to do his will in a different way, in a more uh, upscale kind of a way, in a more socially accepted way. And so, I mean, this is insane when you think about it that, I mean, if if somebody came to you and said, hey, here's a guy, he's completely mentally insane, demon-possessed, he's breaking chains, living in the graveyards, we can set him free, but it would close all the bars in town. Oh, man, we can't lose the economy there. You know, what's the good of the few, the good of the many? I mean, leave him out there. Maybe he's happy out there after all. Oh, you know those demon possessed people? They love to be out there in the tombs because they, you don't want to lose your livelihood. And, and it really shines the light on the fact that we are held captive by the devil in much more sinister ways than by being filled with demons. Jesus respected their wishes. The Lord must be welcomed, He must be invited. He will never force Himself on you. He left. He left. He said, okay, you don't want me here? That's fine, I'll leave. And these guys, they'd already lost a herd of swine. Maybe they thought their gambling palaces were gonna close. It would ruin the prostitution industry. Whatever illicit was going on, Jesus was gonna have a radical effect. In the book of Acts, Paul the Apostle does some preaching and, and the people start to burn their books of magic and occult. And, and that creates a financial distress in the city. And then they're not buying little idols to the uh, temple of Diana anymore. And it causes a riot because the silversmiths' union goes bankrupt. And so this is the thing that is happening here. Verse 38, Now the man from whom the demons had departed begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, Return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. And he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. The former demoniac was ready to go anywhere with Jesus. Jesus sent him home to his family and friends and neighbors. Jesus first sends you home. Don't ever minimize the importance of living out the Christian life in front of your family and friends. You are God's missionary right where you live, right there where you work, and anywhere you play. It's in that daily, almost mundane grind of living that you can make a difference. And after all, Those are the people that know you the best and can see if knowing Jesus makes a difference. They're the ones that have grown up with you and know all of your habits and hobbies and things like that, and and it becomes evident to them whether or not a true and radical transformation has taken place. I want to suggest to you that your conversion to Jesus Christ was every bit as miraculous as that of this demoniac. The number of demons and the degree of depravity are only to show you that no amount of satanic opposition can stand against the Lord. You have just as much reason to proclaim throughout your whole city what great things Jesus has done for you. Episodes one and two of Faith Factor are pretty dramatic, but so will be episodes three and four as we continue in chapter eight. We're gonna see a case of chronic, incurable suffering. Uh, Just again, an example of the worst kind of suffering imaginable, chronic, lifelong, socially outcast type suffering. And then we're going to see death and death at its very worst, the death of a little child. Storms and Satan and suffering and the separation of the soul from the body at death are what strike fear into human hearts. Jesus still asks you, where is your faith? It's an important question both for Christians and not Christians. If you are a Christian, Where is your faith? It's not a rebuke so much as it is a reminder. God has saved you. He promised to never leave you or forsake you. He's on the boat with you in every storm. And as we said earlier, greater is He that is in you than He that is in the world the devil and His demons. You need have no fear of storms or Satan. Now, let me talk to you right now if you're not a Christian, and it's possible this morning that. There are some of you who are visitors or maybe you've been here for years, but you're not a Christian. You've never given your life to Jesus Christ. The Lord would say to you this morning through this text, where is your faith? Because storms are either blowing or they're brewing in your life. Satan is active. He's alive and well on planet earth. And not to scare you, but I want to tell you the truth, he's coming with even greater power and evil in the near future. And I don't mean on Halloween. There's something called the Great Tribulation, after Christians are removed from this planet and satanic events are going to take place, like the opening of the bottomless pit. And all those who have lived rejecting Jesus Christ, not accepting the gospel of Jesus Christ, will have to go through that time. And as evangelists sometimes say, if you can't live for Him now, how will you be able to die for Him then? during that terrible, evil time. You'll be there if you don't give your life to Jesus Christ before that tribulation breaks out. Whatever you are trusting in, it is not going to be enough to get you through life and give you eternal life if you haven't given your heart to Jesus Christ, confessed your sins, invited Him to be your Savior. I want to give you that opportunity today. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You for this text. And, uh, Lord, though there is a tremendous demonic power on planet Earth, though unbelievers are held captive by the devil to do his will, though there are cases even today in our modern world on every continent of demonic possession, Lord, we have no fear of that because you have all authority over that realm. You defeated the devil at the cross You've risen from the dead, and you're coming back soon. We thank you for that. And Lord, many storms, many storms have broken in upon our lives. You've been there for every one of them. But there are some here, Lord, in both of those categories that have not yet given their life to you. They're in a storm, or one is brewing, and they can sense it. And they're going to try and write it out on their own. Trusting in their finances, trusting in their education, trusting in their family. Some of the things they trust in are good things in and of themselves, but they're not lasting things. They're not eternal things. And ultimately, Lord, they won't be prepared for that final storm that comes. And so, Lord, we want to minister the gospel, the good news that you are there for them and that they can put their faith and trust in you. And Lord, those that are in or facing those storms, that they're, as we said, taken captive by the devil to do his will, not possessed but oppressed. We want to see that bondage broken today, Lord. And so while we pray and close our service this morning and Christians are praying, I do, uh, I'm going to give an opportunity for any of you who are here this morning that are not Christians. You, you, you know in your heart that you've, you're not following God, you're not in love with God, you've never given your heart and life to God. This is going to be your opportunity to do that. And what we're going to do is just wait on the Lord for a few minutes and pray and ask the Holy Spirit to have His work here, sing a chorus or two, and then invite you to do something very simple but that will change your life for time and for eternity, and that is to just raise your hand and acknowledge that, Lord, I I need you to save me because if I die tonight, there's no way I'm sure I'm going to heaven to be with you. And so let's sing and Christians pray, and then I'm going to give you a chance to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. this morning as we continue to pray and seek the Lord. You're here this morning, and and you know, just be honest, you're you're not a Christian. It's it's not a slam. It's not a a slur. You just know that you're not a Christian. To be a Christian is to be Christ-like. It's to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. The Bible says that all people born are sinners. They fall short of the glory of God. There's some imperfection in them. You might be a whole lot better than other people. But if you're not as perfect as God, you can't go to heaven and be with God. Jesus came and he took your place, took your sin upon himself, died on the cross for it, and then he offers you eternal life if you will just accept him. The people in the region of the Gadarenes, they ask Jesus to leave, but you can ask Jesus to stay. You can come and have fellowship with him. He's knocking on the door of your heart. And so I want to ask anybody here, ground floor, balcony, wherever you are, Do you want the Lord Jesus Christ to save you for eternity? Do you want to know that you are going to go to heaven, be with Jesus and all those who love the Lord? If you want that, then raise your hand so we can pray for you. This is the acceptable time, the day of your salvation, anybody at all. Raise your hand so that we can pray for you and rejoice with you that you have entered into eternal life give you a few more minutes to consider your decision. Father, we ask that by your spirit you would move upon hearts. There are those here, Lord, that are outside of your kingdom and whether we are planting seed or watering seed, we don't know. We'd love to harvest some seed this morning, Lord. Do that work, Father. Let me ask you one one more time, one last time you're here this morning. You've heard the word of God. Some of it's made some sense to you. At least the part that you know that you're not ready You're not ready to see the Lord. You're not ready to meet Jesus Christ as your Savior, but you want to be. You know that this is real. You see the world around you falling apart. You're wondering what the future holds. You need to know Jesus who holds your future. You can have joy and peace, be tranquil in the midst of the storms of your life. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you want Jesus, raise your hand so that we can pray for you so that the angels in heaven can rejoice anyone at all as we close this is your final opportunity this morning what will your answer be if you could see Jesus today because he is alive and risen from the dead if Jesus were to ask you my child what is holding you back why don't you love me with all of your heart mind, soul, and strength what would it be what kind of lame excuse would you give Do you want Jesus Christ? Raise your hand so we can pray for you. Anyone at all. Praise the Lord. Now, Lord, we thank you for the work of your spirit. And we trust your living word. And we ask, Lord, that it would have its effect. I see some of the faces, Lord, in stress and tension, struggling against your spirit. As you said to Paul, the apostle, it's hard to kick against the goats because they're sharp and they hurt. But, Lord, we commit them to you. We know, Lord, that the stakes are high, that they may not have another opportunity like this, but we pray that they would. So, Lord, take the seed that they've received, and may may it have fallen on soil, Lord, that could receive moisture and grow and not be quickly snatched away by the devil. We commit them to you, our glorious Lord and Savior, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's stand together. God is so good. As we close our service, some of our men will be down here to pray with you. Never fails after the service that one or two people come up to me and they say, hey, I was just about to raise my hand and I just couldn't do it, but I want to give my life to Jesus. Hey, that's fine too. Come down and talk to one of these guys. Tell them that you didn't quite understand or or you know that God's doing something in your life and then let them pray with you. Maybe you have some other need or desire in your life. You, not, you want to have something put into perspective. Give God a chance to work before you leave this place. Don't leave with any need unmet, with any question in your heart. May God bless you. Come on out Wednesday night. We're going to debrief the missions team from uh, Peru. What a sweet thing the Lord did down there. And then we'll see you next week, Lord willing. And remember the hallelujah celebration next Sunday night. God bless you and keep you this week in Jesus' name. Sky